0: Welcome back to the Commission Podcast. In the ever-present search for meaning and purpose, our culture has increasingly become self-obsessed and continually grapples with self-identity, especially when identity in Christ and having an eternal perspective is such a foreign concept to so many. In this episode, Glyn Harrison, Christian psychiatrist and former department head of psychiatry at the University of Bristol, examines how we can prepare ourselves and our families to interact with that cultural turbulence and how Christianity can tell a better story to those searching. Enjoy. Hey, uh, well, good evening. It's great to be here. I think we'd better just kick off. It's a DIY seminar, I think, so I'll just uh, say hello. Uh, My name's Glyn Harrison. I'm uh, from London, uh, and uh, I was a psychiatrist before I retired about... um, few years ago anyway and uh, I was also an academic psychiatrist and one of the wonderful things about retirement has been it's given me an opportunity freed from the drivenness of academic life to explore some of the issues at the interface of faith and psychology that had intrigued me for years but which I hadn't really had time to delve into so part of the fruits of that I guess is what we're gonna be talking about today. Identity in the city. Well, let's just pray, shall we, before we kick off. Lord, we bless you, our God and creator. You haven't left us to figure it all out by ourselves. Jesus came and you not only showed us who he is in all his glory, but we, who we are too, in our need and the possibility Of our salvation. Thank you so much, Lord, and help us to understand the world we live in and how to relate to it better. We ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for turning out on a Saturday afternoon. We live in interesting times, don't we? And probably there's no phrase that better summarizes today's cultural zeitgeist than the one. I identify as. Have you heard that? I identify as. And it's cultural embedding has happened so quickly, that term. It's easy to forget that in the past, identity was largely something that you were. You were a mother, a musician, a plumber, a Christian. Today, however, rather than being something, People identify as something. I identify as, as a woman, as working class. I identify as black, as the famous case of the white woman called Rachel Donizal did. I identify as pansexual. And I guess when you think about it, this phenomenon is actually just one part of a a wider cultural orientation toward the self, isn't it? What's been called the inward turn of the attentional plane of Western culture. Now, listen to American philosopher Michael Allen Fox. He says this We live in an age, he says, of self obsession. Everywhere we look, We encounter a preoccupation with self-interest, self-development, self-image, self-satisfaction, self-love, self-esteem, self-acceptance, self-fulfillment, self-help. The list goes on and on. And that, I suggest to you, everybody, is what identity in the city looks like today. I identify as. So the challenge, of course, to to we Christians is how do we build bridges into this culture? And I hear somebody say, we just tell them about Jesus, don't we? And of course we do that because he is the good news we proclaim. But how do we gain a hearing to speak of him in a culture with its ears turned within? And as people with school age children will tell you, how do we better prepare them as well as ourselves to live in a world in which our assent to contemporary identity claims is viewed as a mark of everyday decency and fairness? And people who don't give their assent to identity claims assign a Bigotry and meanness and oppression we'd prefer our kids to live in a world like that these are big uh, questions, we've got 40 minutes to address them all including questions so we're just going to be scratching the surface, aren't we but here's where we're going with this first um, before talking Does that come up now, that little list? Yes? Yes? Okay. First, before talking too much about identity, we need to ask what it is we're talking about. You know, you'd be surprised how many Christian talks you can get through where nobody gets around to defining what they mean by the term identity. So we're going to do that today, and that's going to be the first question. What is identity? Then second, how should we understand Identity in the city, this picture of identity that I've just described. And how did we get here? What's going on in people's minds? And then third, bearing that in mind what we've just learned from question two, what does faithful witness in a culture like this begin to look like, okay? So what is identity, first of all? We humans have an extraordinary ability to build concepts, to create complex mental images of the world around us, don't we? But also, uniquely, we have the ability to build complex internal pictures, images, not simply of the world out there, but the world in here, of ourselves. And so identity, personal identity, is the concept, the picture, the image, the idea we have of ourselves. The I says of the me, who is this thing? Who is this person? And identity is the answer we give to that question, okay? Of course it's a complex structure, this concept, that we construct for ourselves, it's made up of personal story, our lived experience, where we were born, relationship with parents and all of that. But just as stories have themes and subplots, so our identity captures the key principles that have defined and shaped our lives. Our, Our identity sort of summarizes those key principles events and circumstances that have shaped our, our lives. They're some of the headlines, aren't they? Sure. I'm Paul, the guy in the wheelchair, and it changed my life. I'm Jonathan Aitken, the disgraced former government minister, as I'm always called. I'm Johnny Wilkinson. The guy who scored the drop goal 28 seconds before the end of the game and won the World Cup for England and then sunk into a deep and prolonged depression. Stuff happens, and it shapes us, defines us. But then, of course, we're not simply passive recipients, are we, of what life throws our way? Our story is shaped and modified too by how we choose to respond. So it could be, hey, I'm Paul, guy in the wheelchair, three times Paralympic champion. I'm Johnny, who sunk into a deep depression after that goal. Yeah, it lasted a long time, but I turned my life around and wrote a book about it. I'm Jonathan, who in the depth of my sin and shame and ignominy found a savior who stooped down and lifted me up and reshaped my life, around bringing that redemption and purpose to the lives of others too. That is who I am. So that's identity, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, and specifically the headlines that summarize the shape of that story, okay? Got it? That's, that's how we're going to be using it. But hold on, I hear you say. Um, haven't people been working out these kind of concepts of themselves and experiencing these radical shifts in identity kind of as long as human beings have been around? The Apostle Paul, for instance. So what's so different about today? Is, is today's culture really any difference? People have been grappling with who they are as long as people have been grappling. What? Well, well, I think what makes today so different, everybody, is that whereas Paul's sense of himself was revolutionized by an encounter with a reality from beyond the horizons of the self, wasn't it? A reality that broke in on his inner world. Today, in its quest for freedom, the modern self turns its back on the world beyond its own horizons and relies solely on what it finds within. That is the foundation and the material out of which it builds its concept of itself, or at least attempts to. So don't look for a a world of value and meaning from beyond the self, it says. You say who you are. You just need to look inside. Don't let other people tell you who you are. Don't let other people shape and define who you are. Find the answer within. And so... Today's identity is what I call embodied autonomy. Embodied autonomy. Auto, nomos. Auto, me, the self. Nomos, law. I give law to myself. Autonomy, of course, is a rejection of heteronomy. Hetero, the other, nomos, law. The other gives law to me. The self is ruled by the other. The other's law intrudes on my inner world. No, no, no. In today's culture, heteronomy, oppressive, harmful, bad. Autonomy, freedom, flourishing, good. And that is what I mean by today's identity in the city being an embodied autonomy. And of course, if you think about it, you can see the problem for We Christians seeking to do business with this culture, because there's something in both of these positions, isn't there? From from the eyes of the Saviour, from the eyes of the Gospel, both have some good in them, don't they? Heteronomy can be oppressive and harmful. Indeed, the mother of Jesus characterized his whole mission. He will cast down the mighty from their thrones, and the poor he will raise up. The imagination of an entire people of Israel was shaped by their emancipation from heteronomy, slavery. Pharaoh was the very embodiment of heteronomy. So, yeah, we get that, don't we, as Christians? Heteronomy can be bad. And so part of us wants to identify with what the world around us is saying. And there's something in the claim of autonomy too, isn't there? God has made us responsible choice makers. Choose you this day whom you will serve, says the God who holds his creatures made in his image responsible for who they are. You have to make the critical decisions that will shape and define or ruin your life. You. And so when somebody shares with us how they've been freed from an oppressive father, or mother, or a life script that tells them they've been placed on this earth to live up to somebody else's expectations, and they said, "You know, I realised I needed to look inside myself and find the confidence to be me, and 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 to be the me that that I am." Well, part of us says, "Yeah, I get that, don't we? We're for that kind of autonomy." And so this is part of the problem with how we relate to this culture today. And the problem with today's embodied autonomy, however, is that it's a zero-sum game. We buffer ourselves against the law of the other and we stake our sense of identity solely on what is found within the horizons the self. That's Charles Taylor's term, the Canadian philosopher, the buffered self. And part of his characterization of secularization of the West is the move from the a permeable self in which the construction of the self is a negotiated process as information flows between the outside and the inside to the buffered self in which I identify as on the basis of resources confined within the self. You look within yourself. So that's our definition of personal identity, the concept we hold of ourselves. But the second question you remember, well, how do we get here? How can we understand what's going on in people's minds when they make these claims? Well, we're already into the second part of that talk, aren't we, with our notion of embodied autonomy. But if we want to fully understand this great inward turn, we'd be here for about three seminars in a row. I'd love to do three seminars in a row in in how we got to where we did because there are many factors which have facilitated the ideas behind today's individualism. Economic changes, for example, demanding greater social mobility and and independence. These loosened family ties they gave us a sense of the self in charge. Human interventions, such as the invention of the pill at a stroke, uncoupled sex from its consequences. Now I get to say what I want to do. Freed. The role of academic activism and activists in gaining influences over the legislative program of our nation as well as having the canniness, the cleverness to win hearts and minds with popular slogans of justice and freedom. All of this has been going on. And all of these contextual factors are important to understand. It's not just ideas. Social changes have facilitated the emergence and the power of these ideas to change hearts and minds. And we need to get that. But in the end, it's ideas that matter, isn't it? What did Martin Luther say? If you want to change the world, he says, you pick up a pen and write because ideas matter. And we could talk about some of the important ideas that have flowed into the formation of this contemporary phenomenon of the the autonomous self. We could talk about... Karl Marx, Freud, Jean-Paul Sartre, Michael Foucault, lots of, lots of Rousseau. I think the, the thing I want to focus on, just because we have so little time, is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And if philosophy isn't your thing, bear with me and, and you'll see maybe why it should be. Friedrich Nietzsche, like so many of these people, was the son, came from a Christian home, the son of a 19th century German Lutheran pastor born with a huge intellect. If you read some of his letters as a 12-year-old, they're astonishing, but a rather odd personality. In fact, he spent his last 10 years in a mental asylum of the time, having lost his mind seriously, serious psychotic illness. But that aside, setting aside the religion of the past of his parents, he in fact became one of the great atheistic philosophers of the 19th century. But, you know, it wasn't his atheism that marks him out and makes him important. There were lots of secular philosophers at the time, Feuerbach and others, who who were atheists. It was almost fashionable amongst a certain intellectual elite. No, that wasn't what made Nietzsche different. What makes Nietzsche important is that he understood the consequences of atheism and he pressed it home. And hence, his famous Phrase. What was his most famous phrase? God is dead. Ah, I keep looking for the slide. God is dead. Is that what it says there? Yes. He remains dead, he said, and we have killed him. And he was using this term, God is dead, we killed him. His corpse is lying in a cave. He's not going to come to your rescue, he said. The enlightenment and all of the autonomy that we claimed in that process means that God is dead and he is dead he was an atheist he believed that but you can't get rid of God he said and hang on to the values which rested upon him for their validity and authority oh no 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 no. you can't you can't get rid of God and keep all the values. You can't leave God's corpse in a cave and then say, well, hang on, when we want to adjudicate different ideas, let's look beyond ourselves to a God who will adjudicate and help us decide. No, God's dead. We killed him. There is no objective world of value and truth and goodness and beauty to which you can appeal outside yourself. There's just ideas in different people's minds. And there's power. And the ideas that make it to the top, that bubble up to the top of the heap, are simply the ideas that belong to the people with the power. And so if you want to be a significant person, if you want to live a life of meaning, if you want to make some kind of imprint on the world in which you live for the next few years and then die away into amnesia, you've got to claim your own power. You've got to exert your own will to power. You've got to be a something. You've got to rise up and will your own power. Power, you should become the person you are. Sound familiar? I tell you, my friends, Nietzsche is everywhere on our streets today. Don't you tell me who I am, don't you tell me what I must do. I get to decide. Don't push your ideas on me with their oppressiveness. And if reality doesn't line up with my choices, then it's reality that gets to change and not me. And if my body doesn't line up with what I feel about myself, then we will change my body. And if you don't line up with what I feel about myself, we will change you or cancel you. I identify as. I am my own experiment, sang Madonna. I am my own work of art. Why, even Elsa, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. And we're almost singing along with her. Every new movie, every Netflix series, every new show from Jamie to Cinderella in London, the same thing. You be you. Hey. I couldn't believe it. I was um, listening to Andrew Lloyd Webber who was... Appearing with the scriptwriter for that show, Cinderella. Anybody seen it? By the way, oh, no. About two people. It's probably quite good. I, I heard. Is it? Would you? Would you? Yeah. Yeah. You'll confess to that. Okay. Well. <laughs> anyway, Andrew Lloyd Webber was sitting with the scriptwriter for the show, and he said, "We want to do something different. You know, we, we didn't want to just do Cinderella the same way. We wanted, you know, a different angle." And said, so, "Well, you tell them, Joan, whatever her name was." So. He hands over to her, and, and she, she says, well, we, we, we felt that really make it really different. I thought, oh, no, please don't. <laughs> it's coming. She said, Cinderella really just had to find herself, you know? I thought, this is different. <laughs> and so... No right or wrong, no rules for me. Hey, you be you, autonomy. And what not to like, that's identity in the city today. So I guess, friends, here's the $64,000 question we all need to face. Does it work? Is it any good? After nearly half a century over which this philosophy has come to dominate our culture. How are we doing? Is our mental health improving? Human well-being on the up? Are people's sex lives better? Are relationships more stable and rewarding? Are people talking about having discovered an inner sense of poise and stability out of which they have a sense of confidence to go out and make something of the world? The whole reality, of course, is that mental health issues are increasing, dramatically so, especially anxiety and self-harm at the moment. Our sex lives are no better. In fact, people are having less sex today, almost than since we started collecting data. The line is going down. Indeed, as Professor Spiegelhalter will tell you, who's the Professor of statistics at Cambridge in his book, Sex by Numbers, if you extrapolate the graph, the frequency by which people in the age group of 20 to 40 are having sex today, no one will be having any sex at all by the year 2040. Now, he says, I very much doubt that that'll be the case, but isn't it interesting that a revolution which offered more and more freedom, liberty, Autonomy delivers less and less, which is a bit like the devil, isn't it? And idols, they always offer more and more, but deliver less and less until in the end, they have everything and you have nothing. Now look, I'm an epidemiologist. That was my subspecialty in my academic work. And of course I know how numbers can be used to deceive. And these negative social trends that I'm talking about, they're highly complex, I get that. It can't all be blamed on today's culture of self-invention. But my point is that in the face of these challenges, this Embedded autonomy has delivered very few of the mental health benefits that it claims. And I believe there are good reasons to believe it It is actually doing more harm than good. Now, what makes me say that? More harm than good? I think two things. First, there's the common sense argument. Look within. I don't know about you, everybody. When I look within, okay, I see some real strengths and I hope you do too and I hope you have a sense of confidence to own your strengths. I see some gifts. I see some things that God's given me and in his providence I've worked on over the years and that have made a difference for good. No, I see that and I own it and that's part of my dignity as one made in the image of God and being reformed in his image. And there are Some good things and real achievements there, yes. But I see a dark side as well. And I see selfishness and deceitfulness sometimes. And I see a a temptation to play fast and loose with the truth sometimes. And I see some things that feel as if they've got their roots in hell, if I'm honest. And so do you. So do you. And then what I see today when I look inside, I don't see it tomorrow. And my feelings come and go, and they're like sand that shifts around. And, and so here's the question. On what do I base my sense of identity that I find in here? Where is this stable, secure me waiting to get out? I haven't found him. And that, that's what I'd call the common sense argument. But then there's the evidence of what happened to the self-esteem movement. And and here, I, if we had time, I'd love to show you some of the data on that, but it, it's in my uh, book, The Big Ego Trip. You see, people, the self-esteem movement came on the scene about 60 years ago now, and, and people who promote self-esteem recognize rightly that having a sense of basic worth is important for well-being. But the evidence is Now accumulating, I think beyond reasonable doubt that encouraging people to focus on boosting their worth, self-esteem, you see, you boost your worth by boosting yourself, it doesn't strengthen self-worth, it weakens it. I'd love to show you the data from Joanna Wood's study from Ontario, Canada. And she concluded, and looking at the data of, 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 of the effects of people trying to boost their self-esteem, she said that these self-boosting statements seem to help people who already feel pretty good about themselves. Donald Trump, fantastic. But they backfire for the people who need them most. Why? because it's just your own propaganda. That's why it's just you. Bunch of atoms, risen up from the earth, fall back. And this, friends, is is why I suggest to you we're, we're seeing the rise of fragility in the university campus and it's coming over here quite a pace at the moment the americanization of our culture the idea that we need safe spaces why should the modern self need safety because it's too fragile it's too insecure it's built on shifting sands all it's got friends is itself that's all It's too contingent, too provisional. It simply isn't strong enough to bear the weight of being. And so we demand that other people ensure our safety. And we demand safe spaces and the right not to be offended and hurt, traumatized. And if they don't give us the recognition and respect We will organize to get it from them and cancel them if they won't. So do we have another story? I hope so, don't you? Do we have something to give that's for the life of the world here? Listen, everybody. I've come to believe that in the face of the clear failures of today's radical individualism, we have something that is a gift to our culture and it's time we recovered our confidence in it. It's what the Catholic apologist Robert Barron, you get many Catholics cited here? Probably not, this is a first, Bishop Robert Barron, it's, it's what he calls a theonomy, that is what we have to offer, theonomy. Do you remember heteronomy, bad? Pharaoh, the Egyptians, what comes along a, two or three books after Exodus? Judges. What's judges about? Every man did what was right in his own eyes, didn't they? It's full of Quentin Tarantino-type stuff, that book, as people descended into a, a hell of their own making. What is the book of Judges? Autonomy. Heteronomy, good. Auto, bad autonomy, good. And that book ending with that terrible story of woman being dismembered. And how does the writer finish? In those days, the very last verse, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. What comes next? One Samuel. Who appears in one and two Samuel? A king, David. And who does King David speak of? but his greater Son, the defining King, who every one of us, I hope, have made Lord of our lives. Here's the wonderful thing about theonomy, not heteronomy, not autonomy, theonomy, is that what some people out there would perceive as oppression is actually a law that liberates God's law as it's placed into our hearts, as we're given a new heart, not of stone, but a new heart in which we are shaped and disposed and formed toward our true end. That is freedom. Freedom doesn't oppress us. It freed us. And so you see, the world says, don't you oppress me with your laws and your regulations. I want to be free to do my own thing. Judges. In the gospel, we find that in the forgiveness of sins and the reformation of our hearts, yes, that's a long, slow journey, but the reformation of our hearts and the reordering of our desires to their true home, we find that we become our true selves, freed from our attachments to stuff, to things, and our addictions. That, being freed from that, set free to serve the king is truly liberating now look I get it this is a difficult place to inhabit that that, that we're entirely of God in his image being remade and yet responsible with choice but this is what the gospel does friends see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The king who sets us free is our father. And like the very best father, he wants to nurture us, to coax us, to see us becoming all that he's made us to be. And in living in harmony with our design, we discover our true freedom, so that if we can base our sense of worth and self on this truth, we find the confidence to go out and use our gifts and make something of the world in His name and for His sake and to His glory. And so, friends, If you build your worth and identity on your work and career, you'll become a shallow, one-dimensional person driven to achieve. If you build your identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through them. Tim Keller said this. So that when they leave home, you become depressed. Or you won't let go and they become resentful. And want to have a life of their own. If you build your worth and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up, hanging onto them, and you'll never have enough. If you build your life and worth and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly fighting for attention or overly hurt by criticism. None of those things can provide a sure foundation onto which to build our sense of self. If you build your worth on the identity that God has revealed, you're his loved child. Do you know, I I love walking with what I call strugglers, people who are struggling, kind of a mentoring from time to time. And I see Christians, young pastors very often, so I was going to say, I want to say, no, I say, look, you've got to let God love you. Let God love you. You belong. You're home. And let that give ballast foundation to the sense of who you are and what you're worth. And then go out and make something more of his creation to his glory. Well, this is something of the glorious vision the Bible sets before us. And it's a vision that we have to find ways of going out and sharing with the world. So I want to wind up with a word about cultural engagement and it's going to be very brief this and it raises lots of interesting questions and such a pity we haven't got time for some interactive Q&A here but as we look outwards there are broadly two groups of people I, I want you to think about because you, we need to engage with them slightly differently okay so we're looking out now to the world of embedded autonomy two broad groups of people there are people with good intentions, a lot of folk who are well-intended, but bad ideas. They're, they're people who, they, see, they don't want to see the little people beaten down. You know, I, I was listening to a, to, to, to a guy playing the cello and, and something about him, he clearly didn't have much money, but he's the most beautiful cello player. And I reached into my pocket and threw him a, pound or something yesterday and then a little old lady stopped and she was like one of the ladies that you give money to sometimes and she she had her supermarket trolley with stuff she collected on the street she was a rough sleeper she reached into her pocket she gave him a pound and there are people who are well intended out there there's something about our humanity made in the image of God. We, want, we don't like to see the little people hurt. And part of us wants to go and we want to protect them. And so there are lots of people out there like that, but who are being seduced by bad ideas about how to protect them and how to put some of those injustices right. And it's quite important to keep those two separate. Good intentions bad ideas. Then there's some people out there, they're a different group, they've got bad intentions and bad ideas. And I I, I think I'm going to look at the very briefly at the second group first. We have to wise up, folks, to the reality that people out there are actively campaigning against the ideas and the beliefs we hold. There are people out there who want to see the suppression and the elimination of some of our most cherished beliefs, particularly about human nature and ethical principles. Because, you see, viewed through the binary of oppressor and oppressed, Nietzsche, remember? oppressor Viewed through that binary, there's only one place for us, oppressors. And because it's a zero-sum game, the oppressor has to be taken down and cancelled out. That's, That's the nature of the game. That's how critical theory operates in our culture. That's why the platform for you to speak must be removed. Because everything about you and your position is oppressive to people. And so these are people with bad intentions toward us and we need to wise up to that And because for them this is a zero-sum game. And, you know, I think more than anybody other, I hope I've been going around the country the past few years saying, you know, we need to tell a better story. I read a book with that title. People, people are fed up with hearing what we're against. We're against stuff. People need to hear what we're for. And that's been my passion more than anything else. But we've, got to, we've also got to wise up to the fact that we do need to be tough, tough-minded and ready to face up to people who want to hurt us. How do we prepare for that? We're... What the philosopher, uh, sorry, the sociologist Peter Berger called a cognitive minority. We're sitting in a culture with ideas very different to ours. Peter Berger said this. He said, if you want to survive as a cognitive minority, because your young people especially and the more empathic people feel the social conformity bias of the human heart, they're, they're pulled out into the cognitive majority because they want to go with the flow there's something about our humanity that wants to fit in. People are get, if you, if you're a cognitive minority, you've got to live as a cognitive minority. That means you've got to take active steps to sustain your ideas. Starting with your young people all the way through. Your ideas must constantly be made plausible to the cognitive minority. Otherwise, they'll drift out and it'll shrink and eventually implode, or it'll become an authoritarian rump. That's what he says. You must nurture and sustain. And the kind of cognitive minorities, think of Orthodox Jews, who are successful in maintaining their distinctiveness are those who have habits and patterns of life that sustain the beliefs they hold we've got to recover some of those friends. We are Christians. This is what Christians do. This is who we are. This is how we live. And we teach it to our children. And you know, I think for the past half century, evangelicals, we've kind of enjoyed fitting in more. You know, we could do arts and theatre and philosophy, and we could get to all the professions out of pietism of the 50s and 40s. We've Fit it in. It's time once again maybe to, to stand out in the sense of, of being different and nurturing our beliefs and sustaining them. We've got to toughen up too. And I'll tell you, when they come for, for somebody to cancel them, stand with them because one of the most chilling experiences, and I've been there myself, is that all your friends, they say, oh, I'm praying for you. And their hand goes out like this, and you're on the other side of it, praying for you, they say, as they're backing away from you. Because you're contagious, you're, you're, you're marked. No, no, stand with your friends. Stand with your friends. Even if it costs you. Now, of course, if they're really your friends, they'll be open, I hope, to some feedback that maybe it's not their ideas that people don't like. It's them. So let, let's not excuse, you know, angular, awkward, contrarian behavior with being persecuted for the gospel. Now, there are some, you know, sometimes it's just ours. Let's get that clear. But where someone suffering for the, for the gospel... And for the ethical obligations that the gospel brings, stand with your friends. And look, we all have different roles to play. Don't, your pastor, don't send him out every time or her out to do the work, you know? We've got to do it too, lay people. But pastors, don't expect your lay people to do it and you remain protected. Our teaching has got to support them, energize them, inform them, give them courage as to how to live distinctively in this world. But I'm going to finish. I I just want to say, don't forget the other group. And I've got three things I want to say about the other group. The group with good intentions, but bad ideas. Three things we need to do. First, resonate. Resonate with them. You know, if they've got good intentions, so have we. You know, we're against oppression, aren't we? I tell you, God doesn't like the oppressor. Jesus came to set the prisoner free. This is our gospel with so much to resonate. I get, you know, you would say to someone, I get where you're coming from, I want that too. But then refute the bad ideas having recognized the good intentions. Okay? So you say, but my problem is, I just wonder whether some of these ideas, which kind of only came up yesterday, are going to do more harm than good. And then reframe. Isn't there another way in which we express our good intentions? but with good ideas. Can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about what it means to be a Christian? There's some thoughts about how we begin to engage with this culture. Very last word, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, friends. I think of Secunda, AD 198. She was hauled out before the Roman governor. Along with eleven others, the Silitan martyrs in Carthage, Northern Africa. Sataninus, he wasn't a bad man. He just wanted he would just, just hail Caesar, give submission to Caesar, and then we all go home, he said. And she stepped forward, secunder. I wonder what she was like. Was she a mum? Whose daughter was she? How did she become a Christian? And she said, Saturninus. I am a Christian. I must be what I am. Today she might have said, who I am. And they took her out and they hacked her to bits for her faith. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Some of those giants are looking to us now as the baton is passed on. The of God's truth. How will we stand? Lord, bless. Bless as we pray. You know, Lord, we just bring each other before you because we're a bit frightened. We don't, we don't like swimming against the tide. We don't like to be picked on. We don't like it when we don't know what to say. And people seem to see us as bigoted and mean. Help us to recover our confidence, Lord, that what we've been given is for the life of the world, for the flourishing of human creatures, and help us not only to tell this gospel, but to live it out in our lives too. And we ask it for Jesus' sake, for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode. And stay tuned as we continue to share talks from our time away together as a network. See you next time.